and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Punishment. <laughs> All three of our films this week are on the lower end of the budgetary scale, and all of them make choices that higher budget efforts might not have been likely to permit, for better or worse. Our first film this week features a young woman who, while babysitting on Halloween night, is menaced by a killer recently escaped from a mental institution. This is Halloween. Wait, what? Oh. This is Trick or Treats. When was the last time you went trick-or-treating? Trick-or-treat! Aren't you too old to be trick-or-treating? When was the last time you babysat on a Halloween night? Are you here, kid? You must be Linda. Yes? But I haven't met your little boy yet. Oh, he's around somewhere. You'll find him. Or he'll find you. Christopher, where are you? You're cute. Are you the babysitter? Is everything all right? Your son is a holy terror. Christopher is being a perfect angel. Ah! Help, help! Do you know the story about the boy who cried wolf? <laughs> Quit playing with yourself. I'm formulating my plan of escape. You're crazy. A dangerous lunatic has escaped from Western State Hospital. Hello? I'm coming home. When was the last time you were chased by a deranged madman? Jacqueline Giroux, Peter Jason, Gillian Kessner, and Chris Graver as Christopher. Special guest appearances by David Carradine, Carrie Snodgrass, and Steve Railsback. Next time, don't be so quick to open your door. <laughs> Trick or Treats was written and directed by Gary Graver, who started his career as a cinematographer working on projects ranging from the, the late films of Orson Welles uh, to numerous movies for Roger Corman. It stars Jacqueline Gouraud, Peter Jason, Chris Graver, with appearances by David Carradine, Carrie Snodgrass, Steve Rezbach, and Catherine Coulson, yes, the log lady, from Twin Peaks. You know you're in for something when the very first scene of Trick or Treats shows Malcolm and his wife Joan sitting in the backyard of their large suburban house. The doorbell rings and the woman goes to answer it. There we find two men dressed in white carrying straight jacket and handcuffs. She lets them in and they proceed to try and take custody of her husband. And Rob, this opening scene is just honest to goodness one of the strangest scenes I've seen in any movie. 
I mean, it's it's bananas. It is super bizarre, made even more bizarre by the fact that for the first, I don't know, minute, I was convinced this was the same house that's in Heather's. Uh, they even have the table, the breakfast table kind of set up uh, outside the, the porch doors. It is not because this house has a pool. The pool is very important. Well, first of all, let's just talk about the, the guys who show up at the door are carrying a straight jacket and handcuffs. And they're both huge guys. And in fact, I looked it up. They were both NFL linebackers. But what makes it all even weirder is at first glance, they appear to be twins. I, I confirmed that that was not the case. But I'm watching. I'm like. Why are they twins? That's weird. Like, they look so similar. And they confront the husband, and naturally he resists. I mean, if two guys showed up at my house with handcuffs, I wouldn't just go with them. It's very strange. And the fight almost immediately ensues, which the husband knocks not only the breakfast table, but one of the linebackers into the pool. And then he starts trying to escape by climbing a tree. And then shortly after them, all three of them go in the pool and the husband is subdued. All the while, the wife is looking on with this satisfied expression. And it is just like from the get-go, it is the one of the weirdest scenes I've seen in any of these these movies we've watched so far. But I want to let everybody know, this is the kind of weird scene that is not compelling at all. <laughs> it is probably more compelling in my description yeah, than actually 100%. watching it. I want to watch what you watched, Chris, but what I watched, I didn't want to watch. Uh, so I'm, I'm spoiling, um, look, I don't often bag on movies. I will not say anything uh, too terrible about trick or treats. It, uh, you know, but we're going to talk about it. But Chris, I want to break precedence here. Okay. Break precedent. I am going to. Normally, I take a lot of notes as I'm watching a film, even like Star Crash. I, I had sure. I was chock full of notes. I didn't like it. it. It boggled my mind, but I could not look away. Sure. This movie, I just found myself kind of half on my phone a whole lot. But here are the notes. Here are the notes in in total, my sum total. Okay. A phone in the shower, question mark? Why is there a phone in the shower? (laughs) Why is there a phone? I'm still asking that. (laughs) Other horror movies have one, maybe two fake pranks. Trick or Treats asks, why not a million? (laughs) And the third and final note this is, by the way, this takes you through the movie. This is all you need to know, but we'll talk more. The stupid don't look at me thing just so he doesn't know it's not his wife. And oh, there God. you have it, ladies and gentlemen. It's so dumb. Yeah, no, it, it's, well, first of all, so we have this opening scene where, you know, it's it's like something out of Keystone Cops and not in a good way. And then we cut to a few years later and Linda, who is a struggling actress slash babysitter, is taking a shower. Now, the phone rings and she answers it. <laughs> The phone is on the floor right next to the shower. And I'm like, a phone in the shower? Question mark. (laughs) Who does that? Like, it's so strange. Well, here's the, listen, why is she in the shower for this scene? Now, I know what you're going to see. You're thinking, Chris, you know, you're not, this is not some, don't give me this babe in the woods routine, Chris. You know why she's in the shower, but you don't see anything. It's, It's like a shower curtain with stuff all over it. So you don't see anything. And I'm just like. Why is this scene set in a shower at all? And this movie is so low budget that the they have the water running in that shower. Oh, you can't hear anything. It is drowning out the sound of her dialogue. 
<laughs> because they had a boom. There's no lav. There was no ADR. Um, and so it's it's actually tough to hear her. It, it and, and the gist of it is she's offered a babysitting job for that night that she cannot turn down. Now, I, I mean... She's not a doctor. She's not on call. She, she, you know, and, and she resists because it's, it's her boyfriend's opening night in his play, but she has to cancel on him because of the babysitting job at the last minute. I'm like, there's no, and, and she's like, oh, if I don't take it, I'll get dropped from the agency. There's no agency, no babysitting agency that expects you to be on call like for like four hours notice. There's just no way. Uh, by the way, her boyfriend is played by Steve Railsback. Uh, and he is not happy about the new situation. Um, we only see him in a couple of scenes where he's on the phone with her. And the whole time he's wearing full plate armor in the dressing room for his play, which we learn uh, is Othello. Because he actually has the line, honey, how many times are you going to see me play Othello? Side note, who opens a production of Othello on Halloween night? <laughs> a madman. What theater company does that? Yeah. The uh, number one, I love because this puts this movie in a category. This is not about the actor's performance. No, no, no. And Steve Railsback was a talented actor. Yeah, yeah. I love movies where the character and therefore the actor literally in in the context of the world, of the story, of the movie, phones in his performance. There's a very similar thing with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio in, I think, the first Sinister, where he's only on, like, a video call on the computer. Literally also a phoned-in only performance. I don't know why. It tickles me so much because I love a bad pun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The modern version of that is when you Skype in your performance. Absolutely. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you you shot that in your living room, you know? (laughs) But but the scene is critical to the movie because as you go throughout the movie and she keeps calling uh, the boyfriend to talk and he's like in the midst of Othello, it plays out where and it deeply impacts. Wait, no, no, it does nothing. It is not because if you're expecting you're expecting that, oh, maybe at the end he's going to show up you know, and play the Loomis role and like, oh, he's he's going to rescue her at the last minute. Doesn't happen. After the last phone call that they have together, he's gone from the movie. Um, anyway, we're, get, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, and Linda arrives at the house, and there we find the same woman who had her husband carted off uh, in the opening scene. She's now remarried to David Carradine, and they're headed out because they got a last-minute invite to a Halloween party in Las Vegas. Now, here's what I don't understand. Both Carrie Snodgrass, who plays the white, and David Carradine are dressed in identical tuxedos. Here's the question. Are they magicians? Or is that just their costume? I genuinely do not know. Their son, well, it's actually the, it's, it's the son of the, of the guy who was carted off in the beginning, Malcolm. Uh, and, and now his stepfather is played by David Carradine. So I, just to be clear, the kid who we'll meet in a minute is obsessed with magic. But is that something he picked up from his magician stepmother, uh, stepfather and mother? I don't know. And also, why is Linda dressed like a sexy nurse? The answer to all of these questions does not exist in the film. <laughs> We then meet Christopher, who I hated the fact that his name was Christopher because they say it all the time and it's my name. And it was, it was, it was, I, and he's such an annoying character that I found it deeply upsetting. Um, Christopher, when we first meet him, is wearing a black members only jacket. And it's all downhill from there. 
Uh, I also want to mention, there's a weird moment. If you do choose to watch this movie, and I am not necessarily recommending that you do, there's a weird moment when you first meet the kid where the audio is out of sync. Uh, Rob and I both encountered the same thing, and uh, it, it is clearly something in the film. I don't know what, but it was weird. Yeah, and it's it's uh it's dialogue back and forth between them. So his is out of sync when you cut to the next shot. She is in sync. So it's yes. not even for a full scene. It's just one to two shots, and it's very strange. All right, so let's talk about the kid for a second. The kid is the worst kid ever. Um, he's obsessed with practical jokes and magic. And you know, from if you listen to our our our. You know, if you listen to our episode where we talk about terror train, I love magic. I am I am here for it. But this kid is the worst. Um, and he do- spends the whole night tormenting Linda. I have done I have done a public service and here it is. I have inventoried all of the practical jokes that the kid plays throughout the movie so you don't have to. He sets off smoke bombs. He rigs a chair to collapse. He pretends to chop his head off with a guillotine. Uh, He shocks Linda with a joy buzzer. Uh, By the way, after that one, he runs upstairs and does a little dance and says, sucka. That is true. Uh, He pretends to drown in the pool and then kisses Linda when she's giving him mouth to mouth. He puts a fake spilled glass of milk on the floor. That one I actually thought was kind of funny. Um, He pretends to stab himself in the gut He pretends to cut off his own thumb while slicing pepperoni that looks so bad, I consider it ethnically offensive. Uh, And then he drops a rat on Linda. In short, this kid is the worst. Other horror movies have maybe one, maybe two fake pranks. Trick or Treat asks... Why not a million? The bulk of the movie is these stupid pranks that she's that she's being inundated with. And I'm just like, Linda, you should you should honestly let this kid drown. Who cares? He's terrible. It's an hour of fake pranks. Like an hour, maybe 50 minutes. But it's also an eternity of fake pranks. Anyway, while all this nightmare is going on, uh, Malcolm, the husband who we saw taken away in the opening scene, um, is at the Home for the Insane, which I will say, that's what the sign actually says outside. The hand-painted sign says Home for the Insane. And he he starts plotting his escape. Uh, And I say plotting because he takes a lot of time talking about escaping, but never actually doing anything. Uh, The home for the insane scenes are literally some of the worst I've ever seen in a movie. They are basically shot in front of a gray cloth standing in for the wall, but you can see the wrinkles in the cloth. I'm not trying to bag on this movie because they didn't have a lot of money to make it. I understand the challenges of low-budget filmmaking, but for goodness sake, you can get an iron. Another option is to write a scene that's interesting so that I'm not staring at the wall. <laughs> Which is what Well, Rob, that might doing. be asking a little too much. The problem is, more than anything else, this movie's boring. It's an hour of stupid pranks. Malcolm escapes by by knocking out a nurse and then dressing up as the nurse and 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 he then spends most of uh, the a good chunk of the rest of the movie dressed as the nurse even though he could change into other clothes 
And then he starts making phone calls to the house and Linda receives them and he says he's coming home. And, you know, I mean, you can see where this is going. I did. I'll, I'll say this. I did. There's something I did like about this movie. I like how over the course of the evening, Linda keeps answering the door for trick or treaters and giving out candy. And as time goes on and has as like she's being tormented, she just gets more and more exasperated. So by the end, she's basically throwing candy at kids. And it's kind of hysterical. Uh, of course, one of these times she fails to fully close the door, you know, because because that door people are going to go in that door at, at, at inopportune moments. Oh, and while all this is happening, Linda reaches out to a friend who happens to be cutting a trailer for a movie she's going to be in. The friend offers to bring the trailer over because, quote, it's near her hairdresser. You do not have a hair appointment on Halloween night, lady. I guarantee it. There's no way. Uh, and naturally, her friend arrives just as Malcolm, finally, after his long odyssey escaping from the insane asylum, uh, arrives home. He, she arrives just in time to be the first victim, which I will note happens at the one hour and 11 minute mark, uh, beating even prom night for the, the very late first kill. My goodness. And then uh, an important thing is that when Malcolm gets there, he believes that he is there to kill his ex-wife who yeah. had, uh, sent him into the home for the insane. And the thing yeah. about this is in order for Malcolm to then terrorize the babysitter who is not the ex-wife and had nothing to do with it. The no. movie goes to great pains to have great him pains. still think that it is his ex-wife, which it clearly is not. Uh, at one point they have a, you know, a little talking showdown. Uh, she's on the couch and he comes up behind. And you get the classic, don't turn around. Don't look at yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, and, and she is blonde, I guess. So they it have is. that going. They, you know, but uh, so that he can continue to, because they've given him a motive that means that he shouldn't be attacking the person who they left in the house. Right. And rather than fixing the root of the problem, they decided to slap a coat of paint on and watch the whole house fall down. Yes. That is what happens. And finally, what, what happens after that, you have you have this cat and mouse game that occurs between Malcolm and Linda, but it's so ineptly done that at one point, I think they just walked past each other and ignored one another. I swear to God, I think that happened. <laughs> I, I actually rewound it and I'm like, did I just see what else? I, I, I don't know. Anyway, let's cut to the chase here. So Linda and Christopher uh, set up the guillotine uh, which which it was used for a practical joke earlier in the movie, and and the formerly trick guillotine has now been rigged, so it's a real guillotine. Sure enough, Malcolm falls and stumbles as he comes into the room. His head goes right in the guillotine, and they kill him. It doesn't. It, they don't even chop his head straight off. It's just like, oh, it clearly just cuts his neck, and and he's dead. It's the classic trip and fall into a guillotine, uh, and and get instantly murdered. Yeah. Still fall into a guillotine. Christopher kills his own father with a guillotine, which admittedly is dark. And then there's one more scene. One more scene at the end of this thing. We never check back with the boyfriend. We never check back with the parents. Um, but Linda calls the police for help. And Christopher picks up the knife, comes up behind her, and freeze frame. And that's the movie. Um we're going to talk about that. We're going to touch back on that last scene a little bit later. Cause there's something that, that, uh, but it, it's trick or treats. 
I mean, of all the movies we've watched for this series, and we have watched some some good ones, some less good ones, but this was a slog. This was tough. Uh, it's you know, it's up there with Space Hunter: Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. We're just gonna get we're just get get past trick or treats, and we'll move to the dorm that dripped blood. It's time for a crash course in terror at the dorm that dripped blood. Uh, great. What's wrong? The phone's dead. Did you hear anything up on the roof? Do you think we need to go up there? Need to? Yeah, we don't need to do anything. where the only thing you'll learn is how to die. The Dawn That Dripped Blood, rated R. Written by Stephen Carpenter, Jeffrey Obrow, and Stacey Giacchino, and directed by Carpenter and Obrow, The Dawn That Dripped Blood has a curious theatrical history. It was first released in April of 1982 under the title Pranks. And after a disappointing box office, which I'm, you know, shocking given how the title pranks, um, it was re-released more than a year later on September 23rd, 1983, under the title The Dorm That Dripped Blood. Curiously, neither of these were the title the film was made under, and under which the restored version is available on Blu-ray from Synapse Films. That is Death Dorm. And I gotta say, of the three titles for this movie, I think Death Dorm is the best of them. Like, Death Dorm sounds cool. Death Dorm is not only the best title, it's the one that actually fits the movie they made the best. Yes. Uh, uh, Pranks is just not a horror movie title. The Dorm That Dripped Blood sounds like some sort of atmospheric hammer film yes. kind of a thing, which this is also not. This movie is totally Death Dorm. Death Dorm. It, Dorm That Dripped Blood is, is not a bad title for something else. Pranks is a stupid title, especially because there are no pranks in this movie. <laughs> Nobody pulls pranks. All the pranks are in trick-or-treats. That movie used up all the available pranks. There's no pranks in a movie called Pranks. If you have a movie called Pranks, it should be like a 80, early 80s sex comedy and then should have a sequel called Hanky Pranky. That's where you have a title, Pranks, but not for this. Um <laughs> The Dorm That Drip Blood, a.k.a. Death Dorm, a.k.a. Pranks, um, revolves around five college students who stay over Christmas break in a, to clear out a dorm that is going to be renovated into apartments. It soon becomes clear they are not alone in the building and that a killer is stalking the halls. And the film was largely shot over the Christmas break from 1980 to 81 on the UCLA campus and in the dorms Robeson Hall and Hardman Hanson Hall, both of which are still in use today. The film stars Lori Lipinski, Stephen Sachs, David Snow, Pamela Holland, and Daphne Zuniga in her feature film debut. And I like this film. I certainly liked it a lot more than Trick or Treats. And while the filmmakers clearly had a limited budget, 
I think they did a good job with what they had. You know, there's there's little things, but it's it's I think a solid movie. Yeah, this is a perfect, as you say, this is a perfect um, mirror to Trick or Treats in that this movie may have had even less money than yeah. Trick or Treats, frankly, uh, looking at some of the the technical issues. But the thing is, is that this movie, even with that, um, it opens with a bang right off the fr- right off the bat. Yep. Uh, with with some with a murder and a, it's very a very tense sequence though, and then this movie keeps the tension up throughout. Um, yeah. And it it you know you can see the seams here or there, but you're actually engaged with the movie, and so it's yes. not a big deal. Yeah. So if if you were th- sitting out there thinking, oh, these guys are banging on trick or treats because they didn't have a lot of money, listen. That is not it. It's that they made a terrible movie. And I don't care how much, but here's the the movie that might have cost even less. And it, it, they use what they have to great effect. Um, you know, there's, you know, they, they clearly had limited lighting options when they were doing this, you know. And so a lot of scenes are, are lit practically by lamps or even flashlights. And there's certainly some hard shadows, but like because given the story that they've constructed where you have this dorm, which is basically empty except for the people, you know, the, the few people who are supposed to be there and obviously a killer and, and one or two others, but like, it's, it's, it's this largely empty dorm. And so a lot of times they go into places where the lights aren't on and it works given the setup of the film. Um, the score is also very nice in this one, which I think helps the, the film as a whole as well. Um, yes. There, there, I, there were little moments that I really noticed it in a, in a good way where uh, there's one where you have a handheld shot of the killer watching the couple kissing when they're yes. alone. And it's just uh, and the camera's traveling along um, in, a, in kind of the killer POV. Uh, but uh, it's just like it's a really, really nice moment. And the score really accentuates it's uh, there and, and other moments throughout, especially the in the tense moments. But uh, yeah. it is, uh, you know, something, again, that. Uh, you you can have even with a lower budget you can even with a lower budget you can you can you can create tensions one of the things about horror as and why horror is often a gateway for for new filmmakers is because horror can be effective on a relatively low budget it's tough to make a sci-fi epic for you know a a a on a low budget. I mean, they not to say that there aren't some low budget science fiction movies that are very good or that that create a conceit where you don't have to show something, you know, sort of an epic space adventure thing, you know, movies like Moon come to mind, uh, you know, and where you have a, a finite amount of, you know, territory to cover. Um, but horror often even benefits, you know, from from a lower, some, you know, kind of handmade sort of feel if you can create tension. Um so we open, we, as you mentioned, we open with a very effective kill, um, you know, and, and a very effective chase scene. And, and there we go to a college party where we meet Joanne, as well as her boyfriend, who she's not, seems, it doesn't entirely sure that she wants to be with. Um, and he's going off skiing for the holidays. And she is staying to head the efforts to clear out this dorm from like the university co-op. And then, you know, it's going to be made into apartments. As the clearing out of the dorm begins, one of the students, Debbie, played by Daphne Zuniga, says she has to leave as her parents now want her home for the holidays. Now, I figured to myself, okay, I've seen a movie or two before. She's going to be the first to be killed because she's leaving and they won't realize that she's missing. Okay, I get that. And that kind of is what happens, but there's a twist. 
And I just should put in a requisite spoiler warning here. We're going to talk about spoilers for uh, for this. I know we talked about spoilers for Trick or Treats, but who cares? Um, but we're going to talk about spoilers for this and our next film. So her parents are actually coming to pick her up. And they're waiting in the car for her to come downstairs. And her father gets impatient and he goes to find her. And then he gets killed with a nail bat to the head. And I'm like, I did not see the parent getting killed. That took me by surprise. And there's something brutally unsettling about that that killing. Same thing with the mom, because the mom is yeah. waiting in the car and then she gets it. Uh, you see this, it's, it's a single shot. You're going through the car window to see the mom on the passenger side. And on the uh, driver's side of the car, you see a, a hand reach in through the open window to unlock the car door. It's the kind of thing that in general you would cut around and not show. And I think this is shows the budget level. They they were like doing this in one shot, probably one take, maybe a couple. And it's it's not like the hands doing silly stuff. It's just no. it's in in kind of a, a medium to long shot showing that it's it's um it just doesn't look quite right. It doesn't, but I will say I did appreciate that we actually saw the killer getting in the car rather than every other movie where he just yes. appears magically in the back seat. How she didn't hear him kind of unlock the thing is another is another matter. But like, I actually like that they took the time to show. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, and then finally, so the mother gets killed and then the killer kills Debbie by running the poor girl over with her parents' car. And I just, the whole thing was, uh, you know, I kind of guessed that she was going to get killed, but I was really surprised in the way that it happened. For sure. I mean, I I thought, oh, she's leaving early. She's going to get killed. And then you know that the parents are coming to pick her up. And I thought, how are they going to kill her? Because I, I get the kids wouldn't miss her, but the parents won't. And I thought, well, maybe she's going to leave and come back yeah. for, in some capacity. And then when the, da- the dad starts honking that horn... Then I was like, oh, man. And you, you kind of see what's coming. I love it. The death of Debbie and her parents leaves Joanne, Craig, Brian, and Patty as the four students cleaning out the dorms. And as the film goes on, there's a few more red herrings to be introduced. There's a, a transient individual named John Hemmett who appears to be squatting in one of the buildings, as well as Bobby Lee Tremble, who's going to buy some of the dorm furniture and, you know, gets a little too close to Joanne when he's talking about the deal for the, for the, you know, desks he's going to buy or whatever. Um, And then the power cuts out and the four students then have to split up. You know, Brian is attacked. uh, Patty is later knocked out and placed inside. I got to admit, this was creative, a giant pressure cooker, which to be perfectly honest, made me think of a cliffhanger from the Batman TV series, but was was very effective. Like, And, uh, you know, eventually more mayhem ensues until John Hammett shows up and seemingly attacks Joanne. And she finds Craig and, and the two of them together are able to kill Hammett. And at this point, Craig reveals that he's actually the killer and that Hammett was merely trying to warn her. And Craig actually says... I quote, it's been me the whole time. I'm the one. In case you had any doubt at this point. Yes. Craig's motive isn't entirely clear, but I think he's got a thing for Joanne. Um, And he tells her that he killed everyone else because he wanted to be alone with her, which I didn't quite get because if so, why didn't he just let the girl leave with her parents rather than, you know, kill all three of them? Uh, But in any case, Joanne gets knocked out. And it's around this time that our other 
character Bobby Lee Tremble shows up. Now, Bobby Lee leaves his very, uh, very horny girlfriend uh, to go over to the to the dorm for for reasons I didn't quite entirely get. But um, if you think Bobby's going to show up to save the day, newsflash, he's not. In fact, Bobby gets shot. Is believed the police believe Bobby is the killer, and they shoot him dead. Basically, the police believe they have the killer. Craig, who is the actual killer. Is thought no, the, hey, they the police think that they've rescued the guy who was not uh, the, the killer, and this is where we get into one of the most amazing endings. And we're, again, spoiler warning, but one of the most amazing endings where Craig picks up Joanne, carrying her towards the the uh, the dorm incinerator, and puts her inside. And he and I, and that's the end. And I I genuinely I was like I wrote in my notes, holy shit. He won. And it was amazing. This is a movie that I was enjoying throughout, but the ending really does, you know, twist this into kind of all-timer status, for me at least, where, I mean, it's tense throughout. You're seeing, you know, there's some, like, fun kills, sure. Like, uh, Bill the Handyman gets it with his own drill. Oh, yeah. And they do some pretty good effects, like some makeup. It's not Savini quality, but it's good. Yeah, it felt like very Blood Feast in a good way. It's like like, extra red blood and all that. And, you know, the stuff with the the college kids is is nice, too, uh, in the lead up to all this stuff. But when the reveal that Craig is the killer happens... I, and I can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, some of this stuff is just kind of magic lightning in a bottle. Um, Clearly the actor did a good job, but the tone and mood of this thing just shifts and goes so dark and disturbing. And it's, and it's done really, you know, with performance and mood and score because it's not disturbing by showing you disturbing images. Right, because they didn't have the money for disturbing images. No, they did not. But they do disturbing things and with the story, which is a little different. And the, yes. the turn that it's making, um, it's really, I, I, like, it is just a night and day effect. And then that just washed over the rest of the movie for me as well. I, whenever I watch this again, and I will at some point, I'm very curious to see now knowing like what that does to the overall experience. And it's um, anyway, this movie just punches so far above its weight with the dollars they had. And, you know, you'll see some seams, but I really, really cannot recommend this more, especially for in that realm of budget. It just, I don't know. Yeah. I, I really, this movie really, really won me over. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. Like this was a movie I, I didn't, I hadn't seen before and it, it, you know, again, the first two, all three of the movies today had lower budgets. Um, in particular, the first two were very low, and they both illustrate sort of that it's really not the amount of money you have to spend, but the creativity in which you use it. Because we have one movie that is, oh God, it's just a slog, and the other is really doing interesting things that no studio horror movie I think would would allow. Certainly not at the time, maybe not even today. Just the the full on. You know, he just wins. He he succeeds in his goal, and he is the winner at the end. It's amazing, and that that's a great point, and one that I've always um, had tried to keep in mind whenever you're doing something for less money is don't do something that people with a lot of money do, because then right. an audience is just going to compare. You're doing the same thing as as this other other story that had much more money, so then they just see you as a low rent version of it. 
But when you have a lot of money, it does come with some shackles, which you don't have if you don't have a lot of money. Uh, and so you can take these artistic, uh, artistic, uh, you know, freedom. Yeah. And, and the truth is the bigger, the amount of money that you spend on a movie, the, the wider an audience it has to appeal to, you know, if you're making a big budget tentpole picture for $200 million, that's got to have a global appeal in order to, in order to, to, you know, make, you know, to, to be successful and to not be, whereas, you know, if you're making something very low budget, you can make something that's a little more esoteric, that's a little bit more. I'll say dangerous because it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to appeal to people from, you know, Peoria to Pyeongchang. Not that there's any movies, no Western movies. I don't know why I went with Peoria because it plays in Peoria. And then I went with the next P city that I could think of. This is Pyeongchang. So it's, that's, it's, it's okay. We, we have a low budget podcast. Sometimes the scene show, but we punch above our weight. I hope so. I hope so. Oh, uh, undoubtedly. The most famous of the movies that we're going to talk about today, and probably the most famous slasher film with a Christmas setting, the controversial 1984 film, Silent Night, Deadly Night. the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Survive Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Written by Michael Hickey and directed by Charles E. Seller Jr., Silent Night, Deadly Night was one of the most talked about and and reviled movies of the 1980s. The backlash from parents and critics was overwhelming. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, we need to discuss the movie itself. Silent Night, Deadly Night is the story of Billy, who, after his parents are murdered by a man in a Santa suit, is sent to a Catholic orphanage where discipline is strictly enforced. When he turns 18, he gets a job at the local toy store, and everything seems to be going fine until the Christmas season approaches. The film stars Lillian Chauvin, Gilmer McCormick, Linnea Quigley, and Robert Brian Wilson as Billy. And right from the start, this film is just over the top. You have a title card where, like, you have Silent Night written in, like, you know, sort of very fancy lettering and surrounded by a read. And then the Deadly Night comes in with a streak of blood. And it is just, like, you can tell that this movie is is over the top from the get-go. It is bananas. Yes, and... This movie starts in fifth gear and only goes up yeah. from there. Um, I, I will say that I wholeheartedly love Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, I think it is the strangest horror franchise when you look at the sequels, which we're not talking about oh, today. Oh, it's bizarre. Um, 
But I will say that this was a much different experience for me. Now, I'm uh, Chris and I are in the Los Angeles area. So Mm -hmm. I realized I'd never I've had this Scream Factory Blu-ray. I'd never watched it. I've owned it for years because I am lucky enough to live within striking distance of the new Beverly Cinema. And so I've been seeing Silent Night, Deadly Night pretty much there every Christmas season for, I don't know, uh, last four or five years minus 2020. And yeah, we saw it last year together, you know, yeah. during one of the lower, you know, like between waves of of, of COVID, we, we went and saw yeah. Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night, and it was a delight. Yeah, and seeing it with a crowd is so different because yes. the crowd emphasizes the fun of this movie, which is totally there. Yes. But I think one thing it doesn't get, or it doesn't often get credit for is uh, the disturbing parts of this movie are legit disturbing. And watching yes. it at home without a crowd just laughing at everything uh, allowed those moments to actually be more disturbing. And uh, it, it was just a, a new way to see it that I hadn't for the past couple of years. It's really, and that's a great, it's a, it's the, the, the Scream Factory edition is a terrific Blu-ray. They have two cuts of the movie, the, the theatrical and unrated. There's some great documentary stuff there. Um, the movie opens with a family on their way to see their grandfather, who is, is you know, for, for Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. They're going to see their grandfather. But here's the thing. Grandpa is in the Utah mental facility. I should mention this, enti- this movie was entirely shot in Utah. And I got to say, it looks, it, it is picturesque and desolate. Like the orphanage, which we'll get to later, is like this building that's like in a valley. There's mountains around it, and it's like the only thing around, and it's amazing. Anyway, they're on their way to to see Grandpa, and Grandpa appears to be kind of catatonic, at least until Mom and Dad leave Billy alone with him for a few minutes. Here's a tip, folks. Don't leave Billy alone with Gramps. Grandpa tells Billy, in an absolutely bizarre bit of dialogue, that Santa gives presents to the good children and punishes the naughty ones. And if you see Santa, you better run for your life. You know all about Santa Claus. He brings presents to all good boys and girls. <laughs> Your daddy told you that, didn't he? Well, I tell you something. Santa Claus only brings presents. To them that's been good all year. To the ones that ain't done nothing naughty, doggy. All the other ones. All the naughty ones. He punishes. What about you, boy? You've been good all year? Close tonight, you better run, boy. You better run for your life. <laughs> it's a, so they, they they then leave. You know, they leave the the Utah mental facility, and uh, on the, as they're driving home, first of all, we get the creepiest Christmas song ever. Like it is Santa's watching, Santa's waiting. <laughs> if it is upsetting, it is upsetting. 
<laughs> this movie, and I think all horror movies, have the best songs written for them. They they and do. This they movie really has a do. plethora. It's uh because there's that one and then Warm Side of the Door, which is the other. Warm Side of the Door is so weird. <laughs> Um, on the way home, the family stops to help a man in a Santa suit who they don't know has recently killed a convenience store clerk in a robbery gone wrong and then proceeds to kill the mother and the father. I mean, it is it is over the top and it is. Cr- oh, I should mention that that in the car is Billy as well as his baby brother, Ricky. Uh, and, and Billy and Ricky survive, but mom and dad don't. And, and the whole thing is just nuts. Then we, we jump ahead and we're off to the orphanage and things don't get much better there. Billy runs afoul of the imperious Mother Superior, who has some very strict ideas about discipline. And, and basically everything that could happen to possibly mess Billy up even more happens. Like, Billy is the opposite of Michael Myers. Michael Myers is unknowable and you don't know why he just decided to, to kill his sister one night. Billy, how could he possibly be anything other than given the things that have happened to him? Like one of the kids says to Ricky of his brother, Billy, your brother's a nutcase. That's what's wrong. And Mother Superior's methods leave something to be desired. Uh, For instance, it it seems like Mother Superior and the other and Sister Margaret know what happened to Billy when he was a child with a Santa Claus dressed individual murdering his parents in front of his eyes. And yet when Billy produces a uh, Christmas picture with Santa with knives stuck in him and some other horrifying imagery punishes him because she's going to, she's going to whip the trauma out of this kid. It seems to be her, her theory while watching this, this time around and without a, a group of people just laughing at every other thing. Look, the murder is clearly the most horrific thing, right? You're taking yeah. life, and it's it's a really, really disturbing scene. But it is a single scene. Right. We then get, I, I, I can't even tell, but you know, you're talking about at least 10 minutes, maybe more, of Mother Superior traumatizing Billy over and over and over again. And yes. It, it, and it's almost you you get the impression that whether or not it's a 50-50 as far as like what pushed Billy to go his route. It certainly, I don't think the first incident would have done it alone as the movie is presenting this. Right. Yeah. No. And, and it's, it's interesting. You know, a lot of these movies start with a sort of inciting incident that takes place in the past, whether it's, you know, Michael killing his sister on Halloween night. Um, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, there's always, there's often, I should say, not always, but a variation on the terrible thing that happened. Prom night with the the the, the kid getting pushed out the window. There's often, here, you have a half an hour. It is in the first act of the movie is all just terrible things turning Billy into a killer. Um, the other thing that's so interesting about this movie is that you follow Billy the entire time. Unlike other movies where you have a Laurie Strode or a Loomis or some group of characters who are the potential victims of the killer, here you're following the killer through the movie. And it's it's just, it's really crazy. And the so a lot of the, this movie has a different kind of tension and a different kind of horror because of that. Yeah. 
So it is less about, oh, I'm so tense watching this because where is he going to pop out of? It has right. a couple it has a couple of those moments, but for the most part, that's not what this movie is doing. This movie is more about, oh my God, I cannot believe the horror of what I'm watching. And that includes not just the trauma leading up to him donning the Santa suit and go and finally snapping. But even in those kill sequences, it's less about the surprise. It's less about the cat and mouse. And it's more about, um, A, obviously the, the gross kills and effects, a lot of which got cut for the theatrical. But even without them, because I watched the theatrical this time around, um, mm-hmm. specifically for this. And even without the extra gore, those scenes are disturbing. And a lot of it goes I think to the performance and he was a first time actor. I believe this was his first thing. Uh, He got discovered by the producer or whatever. And um, it is uh, it's, it's really great the way that they stitched all of that together. Uh, Again, look, I'm not saying that there are not funny moments in this movie. There very clearly are, but uh, there are times when it's, it's just kind of disturbing and it's not funny. And I think a lot of times when people laugh in the group setting, a, they get into that mode of, oh, we, we can laugh at this and it's a comedy. And, and they are, they're not seeing it for the first time. They're not seeing it the first time. Uh, but then those disturbing moments, I think a lot of people do get uncomfortable and they want to continue the laughter so that they don't have to necessarily face like, because this movie's yeah. dark. It is this dark. This movie is dark. I will say the, the most genuine, my favorite genuinely funny moment is towards the end of the orphanage sequence. When Mother Samaria insists it's Christmas and she insists, (laughs) despite the fact that Billy's parents were murdered by a dude dressed up as Santa, she insists he sits on Santa's lap and he full out one punch cold cock Santa. And it is my favorite moment in this movie. It's just amazing. And and I want to say with that punch, I mean, it is like an old Western punch where Santa (laughs) like flies out of his chair from the punch from this kid. Um, Yeah, it's great. It is so good. (laughs) Mother Superior, I want to mention, is what ensures that this movie does have a sex equals death. Yes. Because of definitely. Billy catches, uh, spies some people having sex through a a keyhole. Mother Superior gets wind of it. And then she charges in and starts declaring them naughty and that they deserve punishment. She takes the guy's belt out of his pants, which are obviously not on the guy. They're all naked on. Yeah, because he was, you know. And then she starts whipping presumably one of the one of the sisters and a guy who had snuck in. I'm. I'm guessing. I uh, guess. You never see. It's not no. clear on, you know, but yeah, presumably one of the sisters. But yes, this is a movie where, you know, again, we, there's the, the myth that in these movies, sex always equals death. And it's not always true. It is very much true for Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, after the sequences at the orphanage, we jump ahead 10 years and Billy's now 18. And they get jo- they get Billy a job at Ira's Toys, which honestly, guys, you know, like... Maybe he should work anywhere but a toy store. Put him anywhere else but a toy store. Uh, I should also mention that when Billy is introduced in the scene, for like adult Billy is introduced for the first time, his pants are so tight, it's like David Bowie in Labyrinth. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Um, 
Billy works at the toy store and things are going fine for a little while. I loved seeing all the vintage toys from the early 80s. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if Billy hadn't lost his marbles and he had just bought all those Star Wars toys you could see in the background with his employee discount and kept them mint in the box, he'd have made a fortune. Well, and he could have gotten that Krull board game. Yes! <laughs> I, I, Yeah, th- there's a Krull board game cutting, which goes back to one of our favorite episodes from Get Me Another Star Wars, is episode seven with Krull and you're the hunter from the future. If you have not listened to that episode, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is perhaps <laughs> our finest hour. And, and it, 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 it honestly pains me a little bit because it's one of our, our less downloaded episodes because those movies are not... Not as as you know, not as 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 big and 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 the awareness of them isn't as but but trust me, do not sleep on Krull <laughs> and you're the hunter from the future. It's maybe our favorite episode. Uh, go check it out because I think you, you if you if you listen to that episode, you'll want to listen to the show all the time. Hopefully, you're already listening to the show all the time. But in any case, the Krull board game, I was like serendipity. Yes. Um, I will say there was surprising for a lower budget movie, the age makeup on the nun, on the sympathetic nun. You know, she was supposed to be 10 years older and just a little bit of lines on her face. It's good and subtle age makeup. Uh, and I wanted to mention that because you don't always see that in uh, in things like this. And she does. Uh, and, and some of that comes across in the performance. She's not overdoing it either. It's uh, no. Yeah. Uh, the final straw for Billy is when he is forced by his boss at the toy store to put on a Santa suit himself for Christmas Eve. And it's it's kind of amazing. Like, you know, he 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 has children on his lap and and he's, you know, this whole time he's got this this thing that's been drilled into his head that Santa punishes the naughty. And uh, you know, they they make it through Christmas Eve and the store closes that night and it's at this point that Billy snaps and goes on a rampage, starting with his co-workers at Ira Toys. And he strangles one of them with Christmas lights. He stabs one with a box cutter. He you know, he kills Mr. Sims with a hammer, the, his boss. And in the final part of the sequence, he plays a game of cat and mouse with his co-worker, Helen, who I initially found super irritating. But after she distracts Billy with her hat, I really started to root for Helen to get away. But she doesn't because she finds herself on the wrong end of an arrow shot by Billy. I might I might mention it is very cold outside. She found herself on the warm side of the door, Chris, but it wasn't a good wasn't a good wasn't thing. good. Yeah. I, I, I you know, here's a, a funny thing, because I was watching this and I'm like, you know, I've seen this movie before, but I was, you know, again, watch and I was like, I recognize Helen. Yeah. And it took me like a day to figure out where she's one of the like the 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 people who work at the the asylum in the opening of Halloween four. Oh, when they're when they're going to transfer Michael, and it's like it's like and, and she that also shot in Utah, so she's she was clearly a Utah local hire. <laughs> oh yeah, that and that the Ira toys uh, Iris toys sequence. I want to point out another disturbing thing. Uh, you talked about him, uh, you know, strangling the one coworker with the, the Christmas lights and then the other with the box yes. cutter. Now that is, those were two coworkers at the store. Yes. The, the girl, there'd been kind of some little like inklings of will they, or won't they with Billy? Uh, but she is uh, with the other, the other guy who's mean to Billy. 
Uh, oh, he's, he's a first class a hole. He yeah. is. He is, and he's uh, clearly after her. He goes, takes her into the back room, where they're essentially just to cut to the sh- uh, chase, and uh, also trigger warning, disturbing content. Uh, yes. This guy starts trying to rape her, and Billy walks in. Now, the truly disturbing thing on top of this already disturbing situation is yeah. that normally in this kind of thing, this is where the uh, your protagonist comes in and then stops it, right? It's the something right. so horrific that he used violence and it's okay. Except in this instance, it's not about saving her. He kills both of them because they were both naughty. It's the, it's, it is, it is incredibly disturbing. Yeah. You know, this movie, it's, it's, it, Tonally is so weird because there's things that are laugh out loud, funny and ridiculous. And then there's things when you stop and think about them are just disturbing. I mean, I I didn't mention it when we, the mother and father get killed in the the opening of the movie. There is uh, some distinct, like, you know, like sexual, there's a sexual aspect to it. Like the killer just shoots the father, but then like, there's, there's more with the mother and it's, it's very unsettling. Yeah. The, uh, the tone swings in this remind me of almost like a European or Southeast Asian yeah. film in, in that they are so different from what we normally are allowed to see with Hollywood. I, I wouldn't say that these tonal swings are remind me of specific movies, but just the idea of you're mixing tones that in a, again, in a studio movie with a lot of money, you are generally not allowed to mix. Um, right. You can have silly, goofy stuff in, in a mainstream movie and you can have life or death stuff, but it's probably more in like a con air kind of a thing. Right. Right. Where it's the, the, the action has been um, defanged so that, you know, everyone can enjoy all the killing. Um, right. In this movie. <laughs> My wife uh, loves con air. It, loves it. Who doesn't love con air? Uh, <laughs> it is a treasure. Uh, but yeah, I am not bagging on con air. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah. So the, the mixing of those where you're just getting the goofiest stuff, but then some really disturbing stuff, um, uh, unusual. Billy then goes on a rampage in a nearby neighborhood and he tanks a young couple in their house. The young woman played by horror icon Linnea Quigley. A couple of things about this scene. First, (laughs) yeah. Linnea Quigley spends nearly all of her time topless and wearing some very, very short cutoff shorts, which don't seem appropriate at all for Utah in late December. I'm like, girl, are you not cold? Come on. Um, which, again, leads me to that there is real weird stuff about sexuality and sex in this movie. It is it is definitely tied up with violence in a in a kind of unsettling way. I will say the house that they're in is incredible. Uh, It has got more wood paneling than I've seen in any house, including my Um, in-laws. Every location in this movie feels totally authentic in the sense that no sane production designer would design sets like this. They clearly found this stuff in the world. That's one of the the great things about low-budget filmmaking at times is that many they are often much more of a time capsule of how people actually lived, what the world actually looked like, as opposed to yeah. the nice dressed up version. 
Uh, Iris Toys is that way too. Uh, the toy store it looks very plain, and it just has those wire rack shelves. Uh, and then you get to see a, a time capsule of uh, the pinnacle of like action figure toy culture, the '84 or so. Not every room in the 80s, and we were both there, but not every room looked like it was the interior of the over-our-head store from the Facts of Life. No, not at all. Billy enters the house, and this is the scene with a babysitter. He tacks the babysitter and impales her on the horns of a stag's head that is on the wall. And it is, it's something. And then then a fight ensues with the boyfriend, um... And, and it is a pretty brutal fight. And it's like, it's it's really, you know, kind of like, it's a pretty well done fight and it's pretty tough. Uh, Billy is obviously comes out the winner, but it's as the fight ends that we have one of the most memorable moments in this movie when the little girl, the little girl comes out and Billy as Santa asks the little girl if she's been naughty or nice. And she replies that she's been nice. And in keeping with Billy's beliefs about Santa, he gives the little girl a present. The bloody box cutter that he killed one of his co-workers with a few scenes earlier. It is so weird. It's one of the weirdest scenes in any movie uh, I've ever seen. And the child in that scene does a really nice job. Um, yeah. Which, you know, you, you sometimes you get, sometimes you don't. It's not played as the child is so innocent that they don't know what it is. This 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 girl is totally puzzled, and you can tell not just in a questioning way. She, I mean, she knows what dried blood looks like, and is there's yeah. there's a certain amount of fear there. This section, and then the 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 one that comes after it with the the sledders. This is an interesting part of the movie where you have the two iconic kills, really the two most iconic yes. kills from the movie: the stag's head, yeah, the stag's head, and what's coming up. But and what's coming up? You kind of have to have them be the iconic kills because this is this is the downside of following Billy for the whole movie, which is that you didn't. It was impossible to introduce enough characters for him right. to be going after people we know the whole way until the end, especially because right. everyone, all of his coworkers, uh, get off in one fell swoop at Iris Toys after it closes. So now yes. we have to go, really, these are the only times we go outside of Billy's established world is this babysitter at the house and then the guys on the mountain with the sled uh, coming up. And it's it does feel a little so, like a bit of a sidestep uh, where they yeah. knew they just needed length and kills, but the kills are so amazing <laughs> and, the, and the scenes are so good uh, and entertaining that I, you know, you don't care, but it would have been, you know. It would have been nice. There's one scene between those two kills that I want to just touch on real briefly because it's super weird. Oh, um, yes. I, I want to say, first of all, the police in this movie are as useless as Detective Staten Island from He Knows You're Alone. Um, like th this would be the, the incompetent force to back up that terrible detective. Um so the police now are alerted that there's a guy dressed as Santa who's out there, you know, killing people. And there's a scene where cops see a guy climb in a Santa suit, climbing into a house on a ladder, and oh, they yeah. bust into the house only to find that it's the girl's dad. Uh, they don't shoot him, thankfully, but there's something weird about the whole scene with the guy sneaking into his daughter's room at night. Like, it's odd and creepy, Honestly, there was something about that that I just was like, this scene is unsettling. And there's a way, like, 
did did the cops inadvertently prevent something terrible from happening? I don't think it was intended that way. I think it was the kind of like the, the they're going to see Michael Myers on every street corner right. if you talk about it. But this is the this is the issue with you're with Billy so long that when you need to cut away to characters we essentially have never seen and you do such a bizarre sequence, you start wondering, should I be reading into this? Because we don't know any of these people. When you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Naughty. Yes. <laughs> you have been infected with Billy's mindset. <laughs> yeah. It's, oh God, this movie's screwing me up. Uh Billy does have an encounter with some sledders, which is amazing. First of all, the sledders have an encounter with a couple of bullies. So you have two kids who are sledding on alone on Christmas Eve, which is weird. Um, but then they are uh, they're accosted by two bullies who take their sleds. And one of the bullies one of the bullies slides down the, the hill. And then when the second one makes his run, again, having having beaten up some kids and taken their sleds, he doesn't make it down with his head attached to his body in any one of just the most iconic moments in this movie. It is fantastic. Yes. Uh, the bullies come up and uh, happens fast and furious, but uh... this is one that if you see it at the new Beverly around Christmas time, this is one where the, you gets the crowd cheering. Yeah. And really, I mean, anywhere, I imagine that all over the country, there are screenings of this during Christmas time. I would highly recommend going to one because seeing this movie with a crowd is fantastic. The next day, the cops head towards the orphanage because they think that's where Bully will go next. And turns out that they are right this one time. Um, But the cop who gets there he sees a guy in a Santa suit coming up and he's like, he, he yells at him to stop, you know, and you know, he, the guy doesn't stop. He's still, he's like, he's, he sees him from behind and the guy's heading for the orphanage in a Santa suit and the cop just guns him down. And of course it turns out not to be Billy, but father O'Brien who was dressed up for the kids for Christmas. Which does produce one of the uh, biggest laugh lines when the detective is driving on the way with Sister Margaret in the car and <laughs> mentions this. And she goes, she says it was the father. And, uh, you know, the detective says. And he asks, well, why didn't he stop when the guy yelled, when the cop yelled out? And she says, quote, of course not. He's deaf. You couldn't have found somebody else than the deaf priest to, to put on the Santa suit. How are the kids going to tell him what, how's he going to know what the kids want? Yeah. That's, I, mean, I guess it could be lips, lips, I suppose. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's the whole thing is insane. And I mean, then this Mother Superior just... treats that cop who shot and killed the father. She gives <laughs> yeah. him a scolding like, like he took extra lunch or something. <laughs> it's so <laughs> weird. <laughs> Like it, it, it's all, it's all very weird. And eventually Billy does make his way to the orphanage and he kills the dumbass cop and he gets inside because a kid opens the door for Santa, which is amazing. Yeah. And the lead up to this, you get my favorite shot in the whole movie, which is the shot of the <laughs> snowman in front of the orphanage. <gasps> then the ax comes into frame askew and it's dripping blood and then it just runs up and decapitates the snowman. And it is, I, it is, I, I mean, honestly, that, it should be in the Library of Congress. Just that shot, <laughs> at least. It's on the National Film Registry. Uh, absolutely. I mean, not the whole movie, just that shot alone. Um, 
Well, Billy gets inside, and and just as he's about to have his revenge on Mother Superior, he's shot by another cop who arrives on the scene just in time, along with Sister Margaret, the the sympathetic nun. But as he dies, and this is this is uh, his younger brother Ricky, who's still at the orphanage, looks up at Mother Superior and says, "Naughty." And and. If you've seen the Silent Night, Deadly Night sequels, you'll know that Ricky then becomes the main character, at least for the second and third movies. Uh, and at some point down the road, maybe we'll do a bonus episode where we talk about the Silent Night, Deadly Night sequels, because they're even more insane than this movie. Uh, but the, the scene with Ricky at the end touches on something I want to talk about a little bit, because in, in our first movie, uh, Trick or Treats, you had a similar ending where... Uh, you had a character kind of pick up the the baton of the killer. And I, I want to talk about the idea of the transference of evil because both we've had two films out of our three ended with, you know, with something indicating that there is the transference of evil afoot. And we've seen similar endings with He Knows You're Alone and New Year's Evil. Of course, a couple of the Friday the 13th uh, movies, The Final Chapter, New Beginning, both have similar endings. Uh, and perhaps most famously, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers does as well. And perhaps the most recent release uh, in that same franchise deals with this idea that somehow evil is like a contagion that can be passed from one person to another. Yeah, I... Um... Uh, and I would even say some of this, the nugget of this goes back to Carpenter's first Halloween movie. Well, I guess yeah. Carpenter's only Halloween movie. Um, I know he produced two, but I'm not, you know, wasn't his. Um, so I was kind of looking at what was in the ether, right? Because yeah. you look, you've had, you had the end of Psycho where they have the big Psycho Babble bit explaining Norman Bates. Right. You have... Um, I would say you've had other psychological horror movies that kind of were like toes in the water in this area, like Rosemary's baby. Um, yeah. The exorcist has psychological stuff, but the explanation is purely supernatural. So you've had, right. You've had movies kind of, you know, flirting in this direction, but really Halloween is the first one where you have, you know, childhood trauma leading to terror. And then slowly, as you're saying, and as you get down the line, you get into a transference of evil. And I thought, why did it take this long? Like, what is it about yeah. this time period? And so I will I will try to be brief because this is a little insane. Uh, 1967, Chris, saw the publication of a pop psychology book on transactional analysis, or TA, that very much captured the country's consciousness. It was called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Oh, which interesting if you're our age was still a joke. Uh, yeah. If you are, if you're a little younger, you probably haven't even heard of this. Uh, I'm not going to explain all of TA, but uh, a, I can't B here are just uh, a couple tidbits. And again, I'm not going to say that any filmmaker consciously took this stuff, but when, when things enter the popular consciousness and you're looking yeah. at about, Oh, 10 years in it filtered in so that someone like uh, Carpenter and Hill, might have written childhood trauma indicating this stuff because it's just part of our culture now. It's part of American right. culture. But what this book did was uh, it did talk about there was an idea that emotionally intense memories from childhood 
are ever present in adults uh, and that people uh, start to change in response to different situations. And they had the idea of the tape recorder mind that things never left. And you had three basic uh, parts of a personality. You had the parent part, then you have the child, and then you have the adult, which is kind of a synthesis. And it, that takes a long time as we grow and mature, but that part is very fragile, Chris, and can be overwhelmed in trying circumstances where you might then revert to a different mix of the personalities than one had before. Uh, and, oh, and that's really, I think, all all that I need to go into or possibly can go into on I'm okay, you're okay, and transactional analysis. And when you start to look at all of these, I think it fits a lot with what these horror movies are saying about about early trauma and the passing of violence yeah that's interesting yeah yeah i uh, my my initial i think that is that is fascinating my kind of thought on it was that it was after you'd had a, a you know period you know being a psycho where you'd had very you know you had motives that were very rooted in psychology I think that that some of this with 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 the the idea of the transference of evil is actually also a throwback to uh, elements of folklore and concepts of folklore with you know surrounding vampires and werewolves, where in a sense the bite of the creature can transfer some of its power and evil to you. And it's not again, it's not. I'm not saying that they're specifically doing that, but I think that's that's part of the the lineage of this, where they were coming back. With, in particular, with 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 Carpenter's Halloween, to a more elemental exploration of horror, as opposed to the more kind of psychological, what's what's rooted in in more kind of you know the, the sort of sciency. Let's put it that way. Where here we have something that's a little bit more myth based, and and it's a throwback to that to that I think that that kind of thing. And it's interesting that we're still dealing with it. Um, you know, right up to the the most recent movie in the Halloween franchise. Yeah, and and without getting into and really no spoilers about this because we're not doing no no movies, we wouldn't do that. I, I would say that uh, after watching the last movie, um, it it was present in Kills as well. But you can kind of see now in retrospect, the whole trilogy is kind of about that idea. Um, yeah, uh, and that's all I'll say about that. We we will. That's all we'll say about the the current Halloween movies because we wouldn't want to. You know, it's one thing to talk about spoilers for a movie that's. 30, 40 years old. It's another thing that, that that's something that's been out for a couple of weeks. But um, at some point down the road, we will do some bonus episodes talking about the Halloween sequels. And when we get to the one on the David Gordon Green trilogy, there's going to be some interesting stuff there. Um, I just want to wrap up about Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, the, the movie did actually very well in its brief theatrical release. It actually it opened the same day as the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and it outgrossed it in its opening week. But due to the backlash from the, because of the the film, the backlash to the film, it was pulled from theaters. It did have an incredibly successful life on home video. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, there were all kinds of protests and petitions. Parents groups were up in arms, you know, almost as if Santa were a religious icon. And it's interesting because there was no such backlash to a movie a few years earlier about a guy in a Santa suit running amok entitled Christmas Evil, which we didn't include that film in this series because it's a little too different from the Halloween model. But at some point we may do a bonus episode where we talk about Christmas Evil because it's a fantastic film. 
But the film, For Silent Night, Deadly Night, seemed to draw the ire of parents in the 80s in a way that some of these other movies did not. And I want to end with a few of the comments uh, <laughs> oh, that, that, were, that were put out there um, f- at the time. So this is some quotes from parents and critics. Critics hated this movie. Um, here's a few of the comments from the era. Quote, my three-year-old saw the television commercial for Silent Night, Deadly Night, and now refuses to sit on Santa's lap for our annual Christmas picture. What's next? A marauding turkey at Thanksgiving? Well, yeah. Rob, I would watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah course, I'd watch yes. that movie. I watched that movie on, on Thanksgiving night after we finished dinner. Absolutely. I, I did watch it. It was called Thanks Killing. <laughs> uh, here's, here's another one. Uh, quote, the film portends something extremely violent, extremely terroristic about Christmas. It's an intrusion against something we hold sacred. Well, that person should not see Die Hard, a movie that would come out a few years from now, because they are, they are going to have a rough time with with Die Hard. Here, uh, here's another one. Quote, it's an invasion of children's dreams and fantasies. It is a form of child abuse. That feels a little much. Uh, and here's lastly, quote, how dare they? I'm all for the First Amendment, but don't give me Santa with a gun going to kill someone. The scum who made that movie should be run out of town. By the way, that last comment was from famed actor Mickey Rooney. Ah, biggest star in the world. I can only ever <laughs> see uh, what Dana Carvey's impersonation of him. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think that that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, please come back next week because we are going to have a very special guest on the show. Filmmaker and Reverend Entertainment founder Justin Bean will be joining us to talk about two very unusual movies from late in the post-Halloween era, Sleepaway Camp and Blood Rage. And we are very excited to have Justin here for that. And we hope you'll join us next week. Again, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorgis. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And if you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell some dude at, at, at the, the Halloween store or the Christmas store, wherever you happen to be shopping that week, And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. And what it costs I'm looking for The warm side of the door Where the fire's bright And it's burning